previously on Hollowed Ground Storycast. Oh my god, I love that. We were like literally recording the outro. And then I was like, oh wait, I haven't talked about Anya yet. So, um... <laughs> well, I'm gonna say whatever the fuck I want and you can deal with it. When you combine those two things together, along with all the penis jokes, something magical <laughs> happens. <laughs> This might be my favorite conversation that I've ever had with you. <laughs> I'm so delighted by this. Wait, wait, wait. the Imperial March yes. theme? She walked down the aisle to that? Now I'm like wondering how much of this conversation is even going to make sense for someone who hasn't seen the show. Because <laughs> we're just sort of like... Assuming that everybody knows that Angel is the vampire boyfriend of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and they have... But the ensouled vampire right. and Angelus is when he loses his soul, he becomes someone else. <laughs> Whatever. I it is what it is. We're just going to uh, do it. No, that is super clear and should be clear to anybody. Like, everybody knows that trope of storytelling with the ensouled vampire and the vampire slayer romance. I mean, tale as old as time. <laughs> tale as old as time. <laughs> So I feel like we should start our spoilerful seasons five through seven section by talking about what I consider to be the best sort of spoilery gimmick of the show. And that's Dawn and the sort of cute kid coming out of nowhere trope. <laughs> right. Um, so <laughs> I guess I'm curious what your experience of this was the first time you watched it, because... When I was watching it through the first time, I think I reacted to this exactly the way that Joss wanted me to. I was just like, what the actual fuck? I'm so upset. What's going on? And um, I like went to my friend who was, you know, living in the room next door to me in the dorm and was like, you know, like, what's going on? This makes no sense. You have to tell me. And he was just like, nope, keep watching. <laughs> and... <laughs> I love it. I think it's so well executed in the way that it, it sets you up to be angry and to specifically not trust the storytellers who have earned your trust so carefully over the previous four seasons. Mm -hmm. And then they totally earn that trust back again. So for me... On the first watch through of the Dawn part, that's when my roommate was going through the DVDs as quickly as he could so he could finally ask this girl out. <laughs> so I remember I saw the first Dawn episode, so I didn't see everything because he was watching it so quickly and he would, you know, he'd stay mm -hmm. up until like one in the morning. I'm like, dude, I got to go to bed. And I wasn't invested in the same way that he was. So I did see the first Dawn episode where she just showed up out of nowhere and then caught some of the other ones. And I remember that I really, really liked it because I really enjoy like perversity in stories. Like I know that doing what they're doing with Dawn is in storytelling terms, that's the wrong choice. Like you said, it's like betraying the trust of the audience. It goes against everything that you're taught to do as a storyteller. And so I was like, oh, that's cool that they're doing that on purpose. I didn't know the way that it was going to pay off. I just liked that they were doing something wrong. And like Joss Whedon does that all the time in, in his stories, I feel like. So my, yeah, my reaction was like the wrong reaction. <laughs> so, but I enjoyed it. And, you know, even not being a super sophisticated TV consumer at the time uh, and being somewhat pop culturally deprived, like I didn't even understand 
necessarily the specificity of the trope that that there's this long history of, you know, as shows sort of start to get old and stale and they run out of plot lines and ratings are sagging, that they'll just, like, throw in a cute kid to try and shake things up and, like, generate more interest in the TV show again. Like, I didn't have that context. Mm-hmm. I just was, you know, upset that they were basically <laughs> acting as if she had been there all along and essentially, like, gaslighting the audience, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And, but then the fact that that becomes explained by the plot, like, totally redeems it and makes it worth it. And it's, like, one of my favorite things about Buffy. I know, like, Dawn is a very controversial character. I think less so now than when the show originally aired. And, like, yes, sometimes she's irritating, but that's the point. She's a 13-year-old younger sister. She's supposed to be irritating. I just structurally love the role that she plays so much. Oh, yeah. Her, I mean, her effects on Buffy is fantastic. You know, like, in, in the long game, like, she turns, she basically turns Buffy into a mother and has her grow up in a really interesting way. Mm-hmm. And I, I love Dawn. I've always liked Dawn. Like I said, from the first, from that first second, when I realized what they were doing, I was like, oh, that's really cool. It's so funny because I watched that show in a vacuum, you know, like with my roommate and everything. And I, the first time I ever interacted with Buffy fandom was really on that forum that we were on. And people are like, oh, Dawn, I hate this, right? And I'm like, what are you talking about? This is so cool. And people are like, oh, Dawn's the worst, right? I'm like, really? Am I... Oh, yeah, I hate it too, guys. It's the worst. And I was, but really, I love it. What you said about her forcing Buffy to become a mom, it's so true. And I feel like it does really interesting things for her as a character and her arc and really changes the way that she relates to her duty as the Slayer, right? Because before Dawn, she was able to value the world beyond any of her own personal desires and wishes, right? Like she could put the mission first always. And and that was sort of like how she evolved over the first three seasons to put the mission mm-hmm. first. And being a mom changes all of that. Suddenly, like your world is your children and, you know, fuck the world. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to protect my kids above all. And that's a decision that Buffy makes. And I think it's a decision that the audience is supposed to disagree with at the same time that they sympathize with it and understand that that like that's the decision that you have to make as a parent. Giles's perspective is the perspective that you have to take when it's not your kid. Right. And it's different too, even from the previous seasons, like um, you know, with season three, the way that her decisions around Angel are like more personal and rub against what she should be doing, like for the larger society. But the pressure that Dawn puts on her is different. In this case, it's not even about duty. It's about family. Yeah. Well, and it's duty on a different level. It's instead of like duty versus self, it's sort of like duty on two different levels. Yep. Yeah, I love Dawn's effect. It's it's fantastic. So while we're talking about Dawn, I feel like we should talk about Glory 
and how she is as a villain. So season five is my favorite season of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Hmm. I think it's one of the most interesting and like well thought out and well executed ones. I mean, it has everything. Weird gimmicks that actually work out amazingly well, like the crazy emotional payoff at the end. Um, It like really encapsulates everything that came before it super well. It is kind of like the perfect ending to Buffy if it had to end there. Yeah. This I know is good. I know a lot of people who actually sort of refuse to acknowledge the existence of season six and seven because That's crazy. They feel like the ending of season five is just so good and that by continuing the story it sort of like ruins it. I don't know. I completely yeah. disagree, but that is a perspective that's out there. Yeah. I like the way that Glory sort of messes with the villain trope in a similar but slightly different way than the mayor did, right? Mm -hmm. Because instead of being the sort of like jolly, avuncular Boy Scout leader, Glory is the very traditionally feminine. She's characterized in a way that I think is often coded as like frivolous and feminine, but actually she means so much business. Like she's a fucking God. Um, oh, yeah. And and so again, it's sort of like that juxtaposition and contrast between the way they're being coded and the actual villain that's underneath that veneer, but in a very like feminine way as opposed to jolly uncle way. I think it's also significant that she is a woman because it can it can very much turn into boys versus girls. When you look at all the villains, you know, the big bads across all the seasons, it can kind of be Buffy the girl versus the boy. And then to have two women, then that means that it's not about gender. It really is about the, whatever the themes and issues are, uh, specifically for season five, like who you are, the choices you make. And all those things. And I think that gets underlined. If Glory was a man, it would be very different. I mean, she kind of is a man in a weird way, but, um, or her brother is, but she's her brother or oh, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I was but, like, what are you talking about? Oh no. my God. Speaking of gimmicks that, like, should not work or right. <laughs> could have not worked, but definitely do in the execution, like, the fact that Spike is the only person who can remember that. Uh, Glory oh, is yeah. Ben and Ben is Glory is like, oh my god, that cracks me up every single time. That will never not be funny. <laughs> he explains it over and over. I love that joke. That's so good. <laughs> it's funny that that's the first time we've brought up Spike and we went through four seasons. Well, I feel like we'll talk about all of Spike at one point. I just thought we wouldn't bring him up at all. I mean, he doesn't matter, right? He's done. <laughs> He's like... Yeah, the He's least so uninteresting. Who even cares? Yeah. That's it for Spike, guys. <laughs> I love, too, how the sort of Buffy versus Glory matchup presents, like, the perfect opportunity for a very male gazy take on female combat. Hmm. And yet it never feels that way. You have, the, you know, two, like, very attractive women fighting each other, one of whom her like glamorous side is being you know turned up to 11 and yet when they fight it's all about just the physicality and badassness of it those are some of the best fights in the show yeah like it never feels like oh cat fight i love those fights yeah 
Yeah. The fights in Buffy, actually, like, we didn't talk about it at all. Like, I'm a big fan of kung fu movies and stuff. Um, and we're going to have some kung fu movies at one point. But the choreography and the fighting and stuff in Buffy is top notch. Like, that stuff is not easy to do well. Or it's not easy for me to be like, I'm hypercritical of that stuff. And they do it fantastically. And in my opinion, the season five fights are the best fights. And especially the glory fights, I think, are great. That's awesome. I'm definitely more along the lines of Lonnie's sort of like fighty, fighty, kick, kick. I'm zoning out for 90 seconds or whatever as this is going on. Mm -hmm. I get that and why people do it. But if you are into like kung fu films and stuff... There is like a literal visual language to the way that fights work and how people fight. Like it has meaning on a character level that is kind of encoded within that genre. And Buffy is aware of that encoded language and uses it like the way that Buffy is very scrappy and uses the elements of the scenery around her in her fight means a very specific thing in kung fu films about her character and it's consistent you know with that language in a way that I appreciate like they know what they're doing they're doing it on purpose they're making choices on purpose that's very cool So season five also, I think, has two of the most powerful deaths in a series that is filled with powerful deaths. Um, We have Joyce's death in the middle of season five and then Buffy's death at the end. Um, So maybe we can talk a little bit about Joyce first and then move on to Buffy and her decision to sacrifice herself. Yeah. For me... The Body is hands down my favorite episode of Buffy, which is like a weird thing because I have to be in a very specific mood to want to watch it, right? Like, Mm -hmm. who chooses to cry for two hours? Right. Um, (laughs) Holy shit. I think The Body is the episode that I saw where I was like, wow, this is not entertainment. This is art. Like, this is something that needs to be in the Library of Congress or something for its cultural merit. It's like attempting to do something that transcends just storytelling. I guess, so this is like the distinction that Lonnie often makes the difference between storytelling and art, like genre fiction and literature. Like the body is part of what makes me think that Buffy is great literature and not just excellent genre storytelling. Yeah, and that was my experience, like I said earlier, when I did the second watch through with um, my roommate, and we got to the body, I was like, oh, wait, I I didn't understand what this show was before I watched this. And it changes everything. And I have to start over and watch all of it again, because the talent on display and like the intentionality and the storytelling, like it's serious business. This is not the fluff that I took it for. This is like real. Yeah, and if you do a little bit of digging into it, you realize it's also, like, one of the most directly personal stories of Buffy. Joss's mom also died very suddenly of a cerebral aneurysm. Oh, I didn't know that. And the experience that Buffy goes through in the body mirrors a lot of his actual experience in dealing with his mother's death. And I think that's one of the reasons why it comes across as so powerful and genuine. God, that, yeah, you're right. Watching that episode is a choice to cry. Like, you're like, 
I need to weep and I'm going to watch this. It's so powerful. You know, we've talked about a couple other Buffy podcasts. And for me, this is the one there's a the prophecy guys who kindly contributed to this episode. Like I am waiting for their episode on this because they talk about Buffy in the context of like theology and especially Christian theology, but in a very progressive, open-minded and inclusive tone. Yeah, I can't wait for their take on the body given the very high quality of everything that they have said so far. It is such an important piece of television. Like you said, it should be in a museum. It's fantastic. Um, and it's interesting that you, like, in one sentence, you said about Buffy's death. I always kind of forget that Buffy died because I watched these on. I mean, I, I know she died. Just calm down, everybody. But, like, I just kind of forget because I watched it on DVD. I didn't wait from the end of season five, the transfer to a new network in the beginning of season six. Like, I just popped in the next DVD. And along we go, like, I think in the same night. So, mm-hmm. but they are clearly tied to each other, right? Because like we said earlier, Buffy is kind of turning into Dawn's mother or the effect that Dawn has on Buffy's character is a mothering effect. When Joyce dies, Buffy has to grow up and step into that role for Dawn. And the choice that she makes is the choice that a mother would make for her daughter. I guess what I'm yeah. what I mean is I had not put together the connection between those two deaths until you kind of said that in one sentence but I think that they are clearly intentionally connected. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. I love the way that the season finale, like every single member of the Scoobies is integral to that battle even though Buffy is the one who ends up making the ultimate sacrifice. I think the way that everyone is able to contribute, you know, like Xander with the construction equipment, Anya coming up with all of the brilliant ideas, remembering the MacGuffins from earlier (laughs) in the season, Uh, Willow with her magic, Spike with his fighting ability, Giles with his ability to make the hard decisions. It's just like the perfect encapsulation of everyone coming together as part of that found family sort of like what the season four almost season finale was trying to do with you know sort of like uniting Buffy and Xander and Willow's essences but ultimately kind of falls flat I think season five does much less intentionally but actually much more effectively yeah and I think the way that that is constructed leads to one of those Joss Whedon inversion moments kind of the perversity moment where you kill off your main character like that's not how that is supposed to end in a conventional story it's supposed to lead up to the moment where dawn sacrifices herself that's what you feel going into that moment and then when buffy turns it around and she says no me that's not the choice that any conventional storyteller would make And then you execute on the consequences of that in the next season, the way that Dawn feels about herself and her role in the whole thing and the survivor's guilt and just like, ugh. I love the way, too, that the Buffy's tombstone so perfectly encapsulates the tone of the show. Right. And that, you know, it says, like, she saved the world a lot. Yeah. (laughs) And it's like, you know, there's just, like, so much depth and meaning encapsulated in something that is actually like funny on some level because of the way that it's being portrayed. 
Um, and, you know, like, the show is called Buffy the Vampire Slayer, right? Like, it's... <laughs> It sounds like it's not meant to be taken seriously, but it actually takes itself so seriously. That's how it gets you. You get your guard down. He does it to you every time, too. He punches you in the gut. He's like, oh, aren't you so happy? Dead, 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 dead. Now we're going to play a message from the Prophecy Guys, who also have a lot to say about the season five finale. Hey, hallowed ground listeners. My name is Jordan McGill. And I'm Sam Cook-Cook. And we're the The Prophecy Guys. Guys. And we host a podcast where we look at the intersections between theology, philosophy, artistry, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which is one of our favorite shows for both of us. I have been a longtime fan of the show, Sam a little more recent. We're going to tell you a little bit about what the show means to us and how it's changed our lives. So Jordan, both of our favorite episode is The Gift, the season five finale. Mm-hmm. And... I love it so much. I think it's so important because it's the culmination of the season five arc, which I think is just the high point of Buffy. And I really love the gift in particular because when I watched it, it really gave me a different lens through which to understand the work of atonement. It gave me a different way to understand Jesus' saving work on the cross. That Jesus or God is not opposed to us, but is in fact on our side and is willing to sacrifice God's self for our very selves. Mm -hmm. And not that God is like violent in any way or wanting to wreak havoc on the world, but it's just a pure display of love. Mm -hmm. So Buffy's stepping in to sacrifice herself rather than sacrificing Don helped you understand more fully this theological concept that can be hard to wrestle through. Definitely. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, you when you shared that with me, that totally reframed how I see not just that moment, but the whole show and mm. theology, which is the work that we do. We're both theology students. Yeah. And yeah, and that was honestly a spark behind why we wanted to read Buffy as a theological text for mm-hmm. our podcast. Uh, what I wanted to say about it is Buffy has... Like I said, I'm a longtime fan, and Buffy has always helped me kind of reinterpret and re-understand gender, because we live in this patriarchal society which has really unhealthy conceptions of gender, in which it's hard for males, particularly young males, to look up to women, Mm -hmm. and to see women as role models and as heroes. But I had this show growing up that helped me totally reinterpret these gender paradigms and helped me identify with a female hero. Mm. And Buffy is a character in all of fiction, essentially, that I most relate to in her sense of duty and her sense of responsibility to her friends and the way that she takes care of things because that's who she is. She's a hero. She's an advocate. She's a champion for people. And that has really shaped the way I see storytelling. That's shaped the way I see gender. That's shaped the way I see my own identity. So this show really means a lot to both of us. Mm Mm-hmm. So thank you for giving us the opportunity to share our perspectives on the show, because it really means a lot to us. Mm -hmm. We love you. Thanks. Bye. So moving on to season six, (laughs) and I think it's interesting how in the second section of the podcast, we're having to go in a somewhat more linear fashion, I think, because the serialized storytelling depends much more on that than it did in the, the first four seasons. Yeah, just built. It's a nice ramp. Season six is a much more controversial season, I guess. It does something 
very different. One of the things that I love about Buffy is how it rewards close watching and is very self-referential, but not in in just, like, a shallow way, like, hey, remember that time, but, like, actually, like, drawing connections and meaning between different parts of it. Mm-hmm. And actually, so, like, one of my favorite lines in all of Buffy is when Willow finally figures out how to de-rat Amy, and Amy comes back and starts, like, you know, talking a mile a minute about all the things she wants to do, and Willow has to be like, whoa, 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 slow down, like, (laughs) talking about Larry, like, first of all, Larry's gay, second of all, Larry's dead, Poor Larry. third of all, high school's over, and just, like... It's such a such a like stark reminder of just like how much all of these characters have been through and how much their situations have changed. It's such a wonderful callback to a character that in the grand scheme of Buffy feels really minor. Mm-hmm. But in the context of like seasons two and seasons three was so powerful. Like, you know, Larry, he starts off as like the evil jock and then ends up you know, being redeemed and and someone who who the characters actually like and respect. He's and, heroic at the end. He like yeah. rushes into battle. He's yeah, it's great. Yeah, so that is like one of my favorite parts of Buffy, and one of the reasons why I really love I think the later seasons even more than I love the early seasons, which I still love, but because the later seasons are able to build on what came before them in a way that the earlier seasons just can't because that material doesn't exist. Yeah. So one of my favorite things about season six is how it capitalizes on the long form storytelling of Willow's arc, right? Like Willow's dark turn at the end of season six and her issues with magic have been foreshadowed as early as season two. Yeah. And going back and rewatching the series and knowing where it goes, all of those little hints of her sort of like being intrigued by and engaging with power are just so delicious. It's so impressive, too. Like when you see it. Yeah. Oh, wow. And, you know, I think season six is pretty controversial. I certainly won't defend all aspects of it. But overall, I love Willow's storyline throughout the whole show. And I like that she ends up becoming the big bad. Yeah. And again, that's another like really subversive, perverse choice, right? To have probably the most stable character, like the most stalwart member of the Scoobies turn out to be like- Old reliable. Yeah, to be the biggest bad. (laughs) Your best friend turns on you. Buffy and Willow are like sisters and they have this deep friendship and then she becomes like the problem that needs to be solved. And then even then, like the way the problem is solved is not typical and inverts so many things about even the show's tropes that it's developed over six years. It's not like the choice between duty and or how you handle power. It's about friendship. And the person who saves the day is the person who never saves the day. And it's like Xander's moment. Yeah. And I feel like we should also take this opportunity to talk about Tara as a character and sort of like the way in which she was killed off in the classic Whedon way 
the moment in which Whedon kills off characters is the moment in which it will cause the maximum heartache, right? So, like, Willow and Tara have... Their relationship has been struggling because of Willow's issues with magic. And then it's right after they finally get back together. And it seems like things are going perfect. Amber Benson just got added to the opening credits. (laughs) And then, boom. And, you know, that was, like, one of Joss's main goals, right? I think was to kill a character off literally like the episode in which they got added to the opening Mm -hmm. credits just as like the ultimate surprise to the audience. It's that perverse choice. You don't do that. Yeah. And actually (laughs) he tweeted something um, in response to someone who said, quote this and tell me your serial killer nickname, which is your hometown plus your favorite way to kill people. (laughs) And Joss replied, Manhattan, right after you've become attached yeah. to them. <laughs> and it was just like, yep. too much He truth. knows what he's doing. <laughs> you know, and I guess there's a lot of discourse out there about ways that lesbian characters are killed off and using Tara's death as a way to motivate Willow. Um, and a lot of people, I think, are really critical of that. And I don't necessarily want to dive super deeply into that because that's not the point of this we're trying to cover 144 episodes and under five hours hopefully who knows Um, who knows (laughs) but you know of all of the fridging decisions that have been made i feel like this is one that i actually respect and will defend because to me in order to turn willow fully over to the dark side after everything that she's gone through, it would take something that intense. Like, nothing else short of Tara's death would have accomplished that. Yeah. The show didn't handle Tara perfectly all the time, but I feel like they weren't just killing Tara off to motivate Willow. It was that and the audience really had formed a bond with and become attached to Tara And sometimes characters die, but I feel like the audience really felt the full weight of Tara's death in that moment. Perhaps the show could have paid more attention to it afterwards and handled it better retrospectively in season seven. But I think in the context of season six, it was fine. Part of the point of storytelling, in my opinion, is to make the audience feel what the characters are feeling. And in that moment, I am Willow. Like, when Tara dies, I feel exactly the way that Willow feels. And that's not easy to do, you know, from a storytelling standpoint. It's not easy to pull that off and make the audience feel exactly the way that the characters feel and to take you out of your life and put you in the context of this other person that you could never be. And then, yeah, I want to go down there and rip off the skin of some people who did that. Like, it's... You feel all the rage and loss and anger and it's it's terrible and grief. It's really, really powerful and still like exists within this kind of campy genre context. It's not like the body where it's like this brutal real life grief. It's on a higher like poetic medium where it's 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 an artifice to it, but it's still powerful. I feel like the show makes it feel effortless, and it's not effortless. That's really difficult and so well done. 
Like, I understand the controversy around it. I value that conversation. I think it's really important. And we should hold storytellers accountable for the way that they use characters and who they use for different things. But I feel like that death is done really well. I think it pays for itself. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I guess we should sort of go backwards then and talk about the first half big bad of season six, the trio. (laughs) Um, Yeah. (laughs) I know a lot of people don't like the trio. I personally really like the way the show uses the trio to examine a more human side of evil and to call out some of the more patriarchal and misogynistic aspects of geek culture. absolutely. I've always kind of appreciated that part of the trio. I think it's really important. And as far as villains go, we talked a little bit about how the mayor and glory juxtapose villainy with like non-villainous aesthetics. None of the other Buffy villains make me love to hate them in the same <laughs> way that like I just hate Warren. You know, he is the most human big bad and he is the one that inspires the most just like visceral hatred and rage within me. And I think that's not accidental, right? Or not coincidental. Because he is a human kind of villain and he reminds us of the villains that we encounter in our everyday lives in a way that Glory or the mayor or the first don't. Right. It It's telling a different kind of story and eliciting a different kind of emotional reaction within me. Totally. So I remember the first time that I saw the trio, the thing that kept coming to me that I really appreciate about them is that at the time, there had been kind of a shift in pop culture where like, especially if you look at like superhero stories, it used to be that like the big burly guy was the hero and then the little shrimpy guys would be the mad scientist villain. And then there was a shift where that kind of turned around in the other direction. So you have like a character like Peter Parker, who is a very shrimpy, poor kid who gets picked on uh, by Flash Thompson. And then he is the hero of the story. He's very nerdy. He's very into science and geeky and all that. And then that that is targeted at geeky boys and being like, you're the hero of the story. The, just the culture moved in such a way where geeky boys were more heroic which is fine, like the pendulum swings this way and that. But it is kind of problematic because it ignores that geeky boys can be really vile and terrible in all the ways that any jock can be. They can be just as terrible. And to model that in the show ended up, unfortunately, to be extremely prescient when you watch the trio now, like online bullies and the whole like Reddit subculture and Gamergate and all this stuff, like that's what those guys are. Um, But they're that a decade before it all happened. Or yeah, before at least it came publicly to a head in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. It was always there. And I think too, the fact that it is the trio rather than just Warren by Mm -hmm. himself I think says something about how it is like a product of a certain social environment and also the sort of varying levels of complicity and participation that each member of the trio has, right? Because like, you don't have to be Warren level evil in order to contribute to the evil deeds that someone like Warren is spearheading, right? Like you can be a Jonathan, you can be an Andrew, 
you cannot be fully aware of what's going on, but be participating in a system that perpetuates great evils. A system centered around men. But there's no name for that. Like, what would we call that? <laughs> the, patriarchy. the patriarchy. What? Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're totally the patriarchy. I, that's a great point that it takes all three of them because that makes it textually the patriarchy, really. It's not a single heroic villain. Like, you know, like I say heroic in the terms of like, you know, like a Byronic kind of hero who's like singular in his uh, abilities. It takes a network of men to, and like you said, complicit on a certain level, not necessarily doing it all on purpose together. You know? Yeah. They're awful. (laughs) I hate them. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I, we've been talking about season six for already for like 15 minutes and we haven't even brought up Buffy's depression, um, which is like, oh, I love season six so much. It's like not the best season of Buffy, but it's there's great. so yeah. much there. I love that bringing the show back on a different network after Buffy had died, they made the choice for that to have consequences for that choice to really matter. Like Buffy doesn't come back the same person, the same hero that she was when she jumped. She comes back broken in a way that she hasn't ever really been before. And we spend a lot of the early part of season six really exploring what it means to be depressed and to recover from a trauma like that. That's fantastic. It's so well done. Yeah. So when I was younger, I was diagnosed with clinical depression and had to go to counseling. I plugged into that whole storyline really heavily the first time that I watched it. One of the things I really appreciate about it is the role that Spike plays in that whole thing where she has this very dysfunctional relationship with him because of the depression. And I have literally been through that where like my depression made me um, vulnerable to be preyed upon by dysfunctional people. And then, you know, that leads to deeper dysfunction and more depression. It's like this crazy spiral. And the only thing personally for me that got me out of it were really good friends who loved me despite everything that was happening. And the show portrays that in a way that exists within that fantasy context on that higher abstracted level of storytelling, but remains emotionally grounded in the truth of her relationship with her found family, with Dawn. Her responsibilities put pressure on her, but they're also the thing that saves her from her dysfunction and her depression. I've always loved that storyline. Yeah, and I think, too, the way that it portrays both how being depressed makes it really difficult to reach out to people Mm -hmm. in your lives, and that's part of that compounding cycle, right? She's depressed, which makes her feel isolated from her friends, and then being isolated from her friends drives her into more destructive behavior and more feeling depressed, and it's, yeah, that that compounding cycle. Exactly. Yeah. That's why it spoke to me. It was, it was almost exactly, you know, what happened to me. And what happens to so many people, and, you know, 
And then depression is so misunderstood. I think at the time it was way more misunderstood than it is now. I think it's a lot better where people understand that it's not just like, hey, wanna, have you tried being happy? Like, people don't <laughs> do that anymore, you know? Yeah. We understand networks and, and uh, you know, human networks and support systems that people need. And, uh, and then there's also really good pharmaceuticals and chemical help and stuff like that. But yeah, the depression storyline is fantastic. And like you said, is a choice that they didn't have to make, but made the show infinitely better. Uh, season six is so good. So good. <laughs> so I guess this is the point at which I should probably talk about my perspective on the Buffy Spike relationship, which I think is a little bit different from yours. So my fascination with the Buffy-Spike relationship, I think, also has to do with with how it echoes some of my feelings about, um, like, one of my really formative sexual relationships, but kind of from a different perspective. So my first sexual relationship was in a sort of secret friends with benefits situation and in which I was actually playing more of the spike role in the sense that I had a very strong romantic attraction to this person and they did not reciprocate those feelings but were sort of like using me for the sex and I knew about that and was kind of okay with it because... Mm -hmm we were being honest with each other and you know i was using it as like a learning experience at the same time he was struggling with a lot of emotional and mental health issues and i think in retrospect i was both helpful and not helpful to him at the same time like helpful in the sense that i was companionship and uh you know someone who really like understood and listened to him but unintentionally it was bad in the sense that you know he didn't have the same views on sexual morality as i did and he um was raised you know in a religious way such that he had a lot of guilt about the relationship and i think he f he felt like he was using me in a damaging way to me, even though I didn't feel like I was being used in a damaging way. Mm, yeah. Our relationship was like much more functional and less directly abusive than what's portrayed between Spike and Buffy in season six. <laughs> but yeah. the sort of core emotional engagement was very similar. This is really the only depiction I've seen in any form of media that really speaks to that experience that I had. Yeah, I guess I would say that the Spike-Buffy relationship doesn't really represent the trauma of that experience, but it does represent the, like, drama <laughs> of it, yeah. if that makes any sense. Yeah, the emotional reality. Earlier when I said that um, my depression left me vulnerable to abusive people, it was actually really similar experience where, like, the first... Um, woman that I was ever really in love with, it was a very similar thing to what you're saying that she was like in a bad place emotionally. And like my feelings for her were not her feelings for me, but it was not being represented that way though, 
which is the big difference, I think. It was more of a gaslighting. Like, I do love you, and it was not that situation. Yeah, that's that's how I, I plug into this story of, like, abuse and self-loathing, because it was very much like I understood that this was a bad thing that I was in, and I didn't... I didn't have the emotional fortitude to stop. I just wanted the comfort of it. I wanted to be in love despite knowing that it wasn't being reciprocated. I was kind of like more of the Spike role, I guess, (laughs) in that way. Except that I think of Spike as being like monstrous and, um, and soulless, and I don't like casting myself in that role Uh, oh i mean i'm right there with you when i say like i played the spike role and it's like well but i wasn't you know like trying to kill her for years and like actually (laughs) not not really interested in her you know well-being but i was yeah i was yeah i was used it's weird because i had the buffy's depression and then i was used it's like so i don't know like you're you're both at the same time (laughs) yeah it was weird i mean that's it's that's kind of how I feel about it too though and that it's like that relationship is like so complicated and fucked up in a way that like really defies explanation and you do find yourself like identifying with both of them almost like at the same time. Yeah. It's very real. It, um it's so good. Because you would never expect, I don't know, like we would expect this show to do that, but um going into it, man, you don't know what you're getting into when you watch this show like yeah. You have no idea. Yeah. Well, and so I don't know if you had this experience, but I feel like watching season six and sort of seeing that play out on the screen really helped me process that relationship in a way that I hadn't been able to before. Sort of like trying to figure out how my experience was similar or resonated with this, but was different here or didn't match that sort of like really helped me reflect on what had happened and come to terms with the experience and and look at it in a new light. Um I'm I'm glad that you had that. In retrospect, yeah, on on other viewings, but when I saw this for the first time, it was happening to me. Like I was oh, in the middle wow. of that. Yeah. It was bad. Yeah. So it was <laughs> It was the thing that was happening to me, and I don't think it registered in that way. Like, the the depression metaphor, I was like, oh, I get this. Because in in ways, I was over the depression, but then I was, like, you know, kind of swinging back and forth. I was – it was a very unhealthy time in my life. Yeah, so it was – I was right in the middle of it. Like, sometimes, literally, I can remember her being on the couch sitting next to me watching episodes of Buffy. Um and being like, this show's stupid. I don't like this show. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so it was it was happening in the midst of it. So uh, I guess that means now it's time to talk about the attempted rape. Oh, good. Um, yeah, great. <laughs> just just more upper, uh, yeah. more cheery conversation. Um, I guess I'll say I have thoughts related to the attempted rape on sort of two different levels like first is looking at the text itself and what the text is saying about it and then the second level is looking at the discourse that fandom has about it because obviously this is like a really controversial 
thing, both like that it happened and and how it was handled and how it's interpreted by different people. So I've been sexually assaulted several times. Um, and what bothers me less is the way that this attempted rape is depicted in the show and more about the way that people talk about how it's depicted in the show in the sense that like one of my key takeaways from my experiences being sexually assaulted and obviously your mileage may vary is that the worst part of those experiences was not necessarily the experience itself but the way that I was treated afterwards. Yeah. And it just seemed like there was no right way to react to it. Like some people I think thought that I wasn't reacting enough and other people thought that I was reacting too much. And and I basically had like no time for either of those and i was like fuck you i'm just gonna deal with this how i would need to deal with it good um and so i guess that is a lens through which i see a lot of people critiquing buffy's reaction to it and specifically like her decision to forgive spike or not because i feel like you know sexual assault is a very personal experience and I don't know the personal experiences of the writers as they did this, but I don't think there is a right way or a wrong way to respond to sexual assault. I mean, I guess there are probably wrong ways, right? Like blaming yeah, yourself is a wrong say. way to respond to sexual assault. <laughs> but as far as like, <laughs> there's like a broad latitude of acceptable responses to being sexually assaulted and this is one story and just because Buffy doesn't respond the way you did or you think you would that doesn't make it wrong I don't know like I guess so for for both of the people who attacked me what I needed to get closure on my end was to reach out to them and to explain to them what they did, how it made me feel, why it was wrong. And and honestly, like I think if they had responded to that in an acceptable way, I could have forgiven them. And like maybe that's just me, but I don't think that it automatically has to be something that is unforgivable. Like, in both of the cases in which I was sexually assaulted, there were circumstances in which it was like, okay, maybe you didn't understand what was going on. Maybe you thought this was something else that it wasn't. Like, I need to to have a conversation with you to figure out, like, what this actually was. And neither one of them, you know responded in such a way that warranted forgiveness and fuck both of them. I don't have any time for that. I don't deal with them anymore, but I was ready to Mm -hmm. um, because they were friends of friends or people who I had known really well for a long time. Mm. And I'm not going to 
judge anybody else for their decision to either forgive or not forgive, something like that. Um, And I think there's a defendable interpretation of what happened in that bathroom for Buffy as Spike not fully comprehending what he was doing as he was doing it until the end. And then when that realization dawns on him and he understands it, he immediately feels remorse and has to grapple with that and spends the rest of the series really grappling with that. And I think the show doesn't treat it lightly and neither does Buffy and neither does Spike. To me, to to look at that story that they're telling and then just say like, oh, rape is unforgivable. Buffy shouldn't have forgiven him. I hate this. Is like not giving the show or the situation the treatment that it has earned or the experience yeah and and that like i think there's definitely conversations to be had about what are the motivations that people have for rape and sexual assault what are the lasting effects on the people who experience that is forgiveness something that is possible and if so how do you go about doing that like is there a way to really make amends for something that horrible, you know, trying to take away someone's bodily agency. But I don't think that just saying, you know, like, no, never is the right answer. And at least it wasn't for me. Yeah, because in a way that Mm -hmm. takes away the agency of the person involved and saying, no, you can't forgive. It's like, you're going to take away my agency again? Yeah, and that and that by saying that rape is something that is unforgivable is to almost give the rape and the sexual assault like more power than it actually has. Yeah. You know, like this was something that happened to me, to my body, and yes, it was wrong. Yes, it was horrible and traumatic, but at the end of the day, it's one of many different experiences that I've had, you know, one of many different ways that I've been mistreated by people. And like, I get to decide how much uh, it matters to me and how I'm going to respond to it. Yeah, because it is like the back door to the idea of a rape ruining a woman. Well, now all you are is a raped person. Like, well, you, this is unforgivable is like the back door to that. Like this is your defining characteristic now is that you emotionally, you need to feel this way about it because this thing happened to you and you don't get to choose. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I'm so uh, proud of you for the way that you (laughs) talked about this. And, and I feel uh, really privileged to have heard it. Well, thank you. So I'm really glad that, the rape storyline is a part of Buffy, like despite whatever, like how anybody thinks it was handled or mishandled or the conversation around it, whatever the show is targeted primarily at women. I feel like I've never, I, I, I might know like a handful of women who have not been sexually assaulted. Like it seems like it's pervasive um, sexual assault in our culture, or at least in the people I've known. Um, and so for it to not be a part of Buffy would be conspicuous 
if you're going to have this story about a woman and to not have it there would be dishonest in a way. And I know that, or I think I know, I'm not sure, um, because I don't really, I'm not like a big production nerd on Buffy, but I think season six is like Marty Noxon's baby, right? Yeah, I think she got put more in charge of it while Joss was off doing Firefly, question mark? So it's interesting to me that given that fact that most women have experienced sexual assault, that the show had to go on long enough that a woman was finally steering it for that subject to be explored. Like you could say a little bit with the angel storyline, but I really feel like that's about the aftermath. It's not sexual assault. It's just like the emotional aftermath of the sex. I feel like Marty Noxon was important for this storyline being included. And I'm glad that it's there because it should be, it probably should have been there earlier, not specifically this story, but a story. And I do have a little bit of dissatisfaction with the story. It feels more of a piece with Spike's story than with Buffy's. And I feel like that's a little unbalanced. Sorry, can you explain what you mean by that? I just mean it's an important turning point for Spike, which is good because it should have emotional consequences for him. But I feel like it is less impactful on Buffy's story than it is on Spike's. I don't know. That's my opinion. Yeah. No, that's true. I mean, because of where it happens in the season and how momentum is building into the climax and and the whole Dark Willow storyline, Buffy's reaction to it doesn't really get explored that well. Yeah. That's true. But it is good. I think it's good. Yeah. It's not explicitly explored very well, but I don't know. As... A survivor or whatever, however helpful that label is. Um, I would say the way that Buffy deals with the attempted rape is never a focus of the show, but I see I see it in the background and I see evidence of it in a way that satisfies me. Yeah, for a show that's about a female character and um, this is something that happens to so many people, it just feels a little unbalanced for me. It's a nitpick, though. That's my take. If I had been writing the beginning of season seven, I would have done things a little bit differently and I probably would have addressed it slightly more head on. That is not to their credit, but it also doesn't bother me. Yeah, that's not. Yeah. So I guess we should talk a little bit about Spike's arc overall, not just relating to the attempted rape. So for me, like the big three character arcs that I love in Buffy are Buffy, of course, Willow, and Spike. I love how much he changes over the course of the show and in ways that are so unpredictable (laughs) considering (laughs) where he starts. And I think one of my favorite things to come out of the the 20th anniversary celebration was uh, an interview that James Marster did where he basically says that at the beginning of every season, Joss would assemble the Scoobies and say, you know, I have everything plotted out, every all of everyone's intersecting lines figured out, except for Spike. <laughs> um, and it was like that every single season, and that they basically kind of just made it up as they went. And I think that's one of the reasons why it has such a interesting, organic, meandering feel to it, 
in a way that is very different from Willow's story arc, which is much more straightforward. I mean, very interesting, but still somewhat straightforward because in some ways it was really planned out from the beginning. Whereas Spike was really... The writers were kind of just figuring out what to do with Spike in the moment in the same way that Spike would have been figuring out what to do with himself in the moment. (laughs) I like that. That's good. Because he is not a plotter. (laughs) He is he is pantsing his way through life, man. I I I have this weird relationship with Spike's character, like in terms of how much I like him. I really, really like Spike early in the show. And then when we get to the chip, I don't have much time for it. I really dislike the chip. And then what we get in season six and season seven is fantastic. It's like so good. And I don't know how to square that circle. Like whenever I think a story and I have like a complaint about something, I'm like, well, this is not good. Then I think, well, how would you fix it? For this problem, I have a big blank. Like, I don't know. And that's kind of like the problem of his character. Like you want to get this redemption arc, but the chip just feels so like tacked on and sloppy and not good, at least to me. I really love when he is like joyfully evil and he's like the big bad and he's got this whole thing with Drusilla and but he's also like attracted to Buffy. He's like so conflicted and weird and anarchic later, like all the pathos and he's like coming back from it, but he's not whiny like Angel and he's not like all mopey and like, oh, I was so bad. He's like, yeah, I was bad. I'm dealing with it. Okay. I don't know. Like, he's fantastic. It's just that middle area. Like, I just have to whistle past pretty much all of season four and part of five. (laughs) Yeah, I totally see what you're saying about the trip, how it feels really artificial. That's a good word for it. For me, the one part of Spike's storyline that I really don't like is not actually the chip itself, but at the beginning of season five when he suddenly decides that he's in love with her. Yeah. It really feels kind of just like a switch is flipped, and I wish that they had... um had it be more of a actual slow, organically developing kind of thing as opposed to him just waking up one day and being like oh god i'm in love with buffy doesn't he literally like wake up from a dream (laughs) no he literally he just has a dream that they're making out and then he wakes up and he's like oh god and then and then like from that moment on he is like romantically obsessed with buffy that's not how like i experience attraction (laughs) to people so i just don't relate to it i don't know it seems like sloppy writing or not sloppy, but like lazy it's too, writing. Yeah, too fast. Like we're trying to get from A to B and we don't really know how to do it, particularly in the amount of time that we want to do it in. So we'll just like you know, have it happen and not explain. <laughs> that you know what, that speaks directly to the thing that you said though of the behind the scenes production of Joss Whedon going like, I don't know. I don't know, Spike, I don't know. And so, like, somebody gets the idea of, like, what if he was in love with Buffy? And they're like, okay, now he's in love with Buffy. And it's like, it literally is, like, flipping a switch because it's like, oh, we got an idea. We got an idea. Okay. Okay, okay, okay. He wakes up from a dream. Perfect. Good job, guys. Yeah. It's not, it's not that slow burn because it sticks out compared to everybody else's arc, which is so smooth and beautiful and, like, builds properly and pays off so nicely. And, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I feel like the rest of his arc does feel much more smooth and 
and organic and like it makes sense to me like honestly like I understand you having problems with the trip but the trip itself doesn't really bother me if you accept the premise of the initiative and like that whole season four plotline at all the trip (laughs) okay it is a big if but i'm just saying like given that that's where the show went the trip makes sense in that context to me and his sort of slowly changing behavior as the trip allows him to be in situations that he wouldn't be in otherwise and and becoming more and more conflicted over time with the trip oh yeah I don't know. Yeah, I buy I mean, it. There's no other, like I said, I can't think of a better way to get out of it. Cause you have to like, you can't take them from happy meals on legs to I love you now. Like that, that's not, you can't do that. Like you have to have some kind of middle ground and the, and the chip is the middle ground. It's just like, I don't know. It's just like, I'm, I'm not here for it. Like I'm nope. You didn't sell me on that, which is fine. Like, it doesn't break the show for me. It doesn't break Spike. Because James Marsters, like, he can't do anything wrong. Like, he's awesome. It's fine. It's just not great. It's my only complaint with Spike. (laughs) So, season seven. (laughs) I have to say, I think season seven is my favorite season. Really? Um, It's Oh, yeah. It's real tight with season three. And I guess the comic... Season three is also my second favorite. Yeah. The common ground there is faith, but uh, yeah, I love, 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 love season seven. It's so good. (laughs) So what do you love about season seven? You know, season seven feels more mythic to me, which appeals to my sensibilities. Like I'm into all these ancient old stories and to go like, okay, now we're going to tell a story about the first evil. I'm like, I'm here for that. Like uh, my bucket of popcorn, let's go. Like, let's talk about the first evil. And I love how it gets into the mythology of what the Slayer is and where it comes from. And it's just all this world building paying off in a way that's my jam. That's what I'm into. Yeah. So I totally agree. And one of my other favorite scenes in all of Buffy is from the premiere of season seven, Lessons, where the first evil is going through all of their previous incarnations of the big bad and ending on Buffy herself. Yeah. And just like that whole scene is so fucking powerful again, as like a reminder of how far we've come and how far these characters have come. Um, And I love too the way that when the first evil takes on someone's persona, like it's much deeper than just, a mask right it's he's not just wearing someone's face like he is it it is really inhabiting that person in a much deeper and like more fundamental way the diction of each of those characters is chosen so carefully Mm -hmm. to represent something that only that character would think to say there's like something very mystical and mysterious about the first evil it's not just camouflage it's tapping into a power that's like deeper than that right and is really those people in some way which is what makes the choice to have buffy as a part of that whole amalgamation fantastic because it shows this like darker edge to Buffy that's always kind of been there, but that she never like really indulges in, you know, like apart from maybe some of her impulses with Angel and stuff or with Spike 
you know, like her toxic relationship with some of the men in her life reveals this darker component to her. And it really is personified in that season. The way that she talks to Caleb and to Spike, it's just fantastic. Like, I love that Buffy's a part of that mix, part of the evil. Yeah, I really love what season seven has to say about patriarchy and power. I mean, they're like very explicit about these themes. And like we mentioned before, I think know some people see Buffy's sacrifice off the tower in season five as the perfect culmination of the whole series. Mm -hmm. I really like season seven because I feel like it circles back around to season one and sort of like the fundamental question of what Buffy is in a really powerful way more than season five does. And I think that's like one of the things that Lonnie is talking about a lot in her analysis of season seven and still pretty is yeah, like explicitly drawing these connections between the first evil and the master and sort of like what it really means to have one girl in all the world activated, filled with power to be used as a tool of the patriarchy to fight evil. Season seven does something that you really need to do when you're going to write a story. If you're going to write a story, you need to ask yourself why these characters and why now, like in terms of the timeline of the story. And if you go back to season one, why Buffy and why now? The answer is in season seven, because Buffy is kind of the last of the singular slayers. And her story is the transition in that world to like an evening of the power in the world where all of these slayers exist now. Like the world is fundamentally changed because of Buffy. And that's why you you need to tell her story. You just blew my mind. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like you without season seven the story really is incomplete, in my opinion. Like, it it never answers that question of why Buffy, why now? Why not some other Slayer? Why not Nikki's story? Yeah. Or anybody, yeah, throughout time. And it's because she's not only the last, it's not like now there's no more Slayers. It's like, now there's a gazillion Slayers. Like, now everything's different. (laughs) It's awesome. Do you want to talk about the potentials or? I mean... (laughs) I have the controversial opinion of not um, hating Kennedy. So what? Okay, we're leaving this in. (laughs) (laughs) I defend yourself. (laughs) Knives out. Um, I don't know, Kennedy. She just doesn't. I think it's that that effect of watching the DVDs very very quickly and watching them in a vacuum away from all of fandom. Where I was like, oh, okay, clearly, like, if Faith had been killed, because Buffy dying doesn't matter, like, it's, um, in terms of who the next Slayer is, like, she could die and come back, and it, it doesn't seem to matter, like, there's nobody else activated. Faith is the Slayer. So, I feel like if Faith had died, that Kennedy would have been the Slayer, like, she exhibits the most Slayer qualities in her, like, she's very independent, she's very, like... She's well-trained, like she's ready for it in a way that all of the other potentials aren't. And she's kind of singled out for that. I also see her like in terms of, because I'm so like into religion and whatever. In every religion, there's always like a Peter-like character who's who is always like underneath the sage, like Jesus or the teacher, whoever. 
and their role in the story is to like get everything wrong they're like <laughs> like that's what peter does like he's like you mean like this jesus and jesus is like no let me explain it to you and the audience <laughs> that it- peter is the the audience surrogate well kind of like he's like the one who gets it wrong <laughs> so that you can learn the lesson and kennedy is like too headstrong she's too ready to fight she's um she's not considerate of other people's feelings and her effect on willow and she doesn't she doesn't get it most of the time and that opens up space in the story for the conflict and for the resolution and and everything else that you need like she she does the job that she's supposed to do storytelling wise i i'm not like she is so hated in the fandom that i'm i'm always like oh yeah kennedy yeah guys I hate her too, but it's like, I don't really, I don't hate her. She's not offensive to me. <laughs> I don't think she's that bad. Like, I don't get it. I don't understand. I, I Maybe it's like the emotional I attachment mean, to Tara that like she's. Yeah, yeah, no, I, that's a big part of it for me. Like, not necessarily that I'm so attached to Tara that I don't want to see Willow with anybody else. It's more just that I really don't buy the relationship between Kennedy and Willow. Oh, that's fair. Yeah. And I don't, like, A, I don't think that they're well-matched mm-hmm. together, and B, I don't think that the story is told in a believable, compelling way. And so that makes me dislike her character more than I would have if she was just, as you say, like, playing the Peter role and being that sort of, like, brash, obnoxious overly gung-ho slayer in the house like i could i think actually i could see myself enjoying her in that role if she was not romantically involved with willow yeah that's kind of fair because i am like in my whole description you'll notice i did not bring up her relationship with willow (laughs) and it's like i'm kind of whistling past that like yeah i don't think about it too much in those those episodes where it revolves around that i think it's interesting to move willow on in a romantic way to to challenge her character in that way because you know like her arc is kind of really interesting in season seven where she's been so powerful and now she's like afraid of the power and she's afraid to move on so that's a good thing to put in her path storytelling wise but yeah it's not it's not fantastic i think it would have been really interesting if they had had willow and kennedy initially get together and hook up and have it as sort of like a cathartic moving on experience for willow but then have willow end the relationship Mm. because it wasn't working for her you know because having been in a relationship with someone like tara kennedy's just not (laughs) you know doing it for her right yeah, that I actually I really like that. Now that you're saying that, like that's really good because it would have put an interesting dynamic into all of those really big scenes where everybody's sitting around and they're debating stuff because they're constantly like kind of backing each other up and it would have been more interesting for them to be antagonistic because there's like a romance that didn't work out or something, you know. Really yeah. Funny. I feel like there's there's always some interesting tension that happens when you put like exes in the yeah. same room trying to solve a problem together. And that could have been really interesting. I also think, you know, there's sort of like the stereotype of U-Haul lesbians. Um <laughs> and I think it would have been interesting to to have 
them hook up, have a meaningful connection, at least like in that moment, but like not have it necessarily turn into a committed long-term relationship. Yeah. Because, I mean, like obviously there's one Willow and there's a lot of other people, but yeah, like the heterosexual relationships get depicted with much more diversity than the lesbian relationships in the show. Yeah. Yeah, you got a good point. You got me there. I just don't think, I don't <laughs> think Kennedy is the worst, is, is my controversial opinion. <laughs> I feel like this episode is going to be really confusing for someone who's like the casual Buffy fan, but isn't necessarily steeped in all of the like <laughs> canon fan fandom wars. Man, I did not know about <laughs> like, any of I don't that. understand what are all of these posi- yeah. all of these positions that I'm supposed to have. <laughs> I got so like. <laughs> I, on those forums, I got uh, a little like gun shy of like I would never go into the spoiler thread, and because it was like I didn't know the etiquette on some level, I was like, oh, am I gonna say that like oh my favorite monster is this monster? And then people go, what the fuck, dude? Like, what's wrong with you? So, yeah. Um. Okay. <laughs> uh, and I feel like we really should have a conversation about race and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but it's gonna be a fairly short conversation about race and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, because that basically is that, like, there should be more of it that's not just white people. Um, Yeah. I mean, I feel like Buffy is an interesting transitional show, because in some respects, it feels very modern, at least by the end as far as like the types of storytelling that it's doing, but it also started really in an earlier era before, I hesitate to use the phrase as good, but Hollywood was more shitty about race (laughs) than it is currently. Like each show that Joss makes as his career moves on gets more and more diverse. Mm -hmm. And not saying that he's now perfectly evolved or whatever. And there's definitely critiques to be made about all of his shows, but like, you know, Buffy is first and it's basically all white. And then you get Angel ends up having like a little bit of color inserted into it. And then Firefly is so much better. Um, And Dollhouse also has a much more diverse cast. Yeah. I mean, I guess in Buffy, we get Kendra and we get Principal Wood, who I love in season seven. And, What's his name uh, for the mayor? Um, oh, Mr. Trick? Yeah. That's about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> it go. It should go without saying that, like, it's completely unrealistic to have a show set in Southern California with no Hispanics. Oh, right. Yeah. And, and also no Black people. Yeah. I mean, like, literally no Hispanics and very few Black yeah. people. I mean, and Kendra isn't even from California. They, like, had to import her from Jamaica right. to get a Black person on the show. And then she's killed. So, so I'm not sure how much interesting stuff there is to say about it besides that. I think you said everything that I would say. If you watch Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., that's great on that front, but he's not in charge of that show. And one of the people who is, is a woman of color. So I don't think that's a coincidence. Yeah. So, and in that time when Buffy was on, diversity was a black female judge. You know, like, we did it, guys. We did it. Did you see that? Did you see that the president of the future is a black woman? We did it, guys. Problem solved. So we're almost done, guys. Don't worry. Uh, (laughs) The light is at the end of the tunnel. Um, But I wanted to just 
take a minute to thank everyone who responded on Twitter with suggestions for things that we should talk about. We tried to incorporate all of your suggestions into our conversation, but I just want to acknowledge everyone now. So thank you to at Mandy Kay, thank you to at Dr. Kelly Jones, thank you to at this A.E. Shaw, thank you to at JLMO, thank you to at Agent Austin, thank you to at Joss Ruckus. And then we have a couple specific questions that people asked um, that didn't quite fit into the conversation, so we're gonna answer those right now. Um, so first up, from... Abigail at this A.E. Shaw, um, she asked, having watched the show as it aired, the context of time is really important to me. Do you think the show is aging well and what might we lose watching it now? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Luckily, we're all still using beepers. Yeah. (laughs) And I think we just kind of talked about this with the issue of race at the time, you know, in terms of diversity, which was very tokenistic and had nothing to do with character or anything like that. So that's not aging well. I think it's more and more conspicuous as time goes on, how white the cast is and how white everyone is coded. But in terms of what we lose, I don't, I feel like the story is still powerful. What do you think? Yeah, I definitely agree. I think season one has probably aged the least well. Yeah. It definitely has a very 90s feel to it. You know, the way that we think about sexual ethics surrounding consent and non-heterosexual identities has changed a bit. Oh, sure. But I, you know, like, I feel like the the coming out metaphor, well, you know, actually, there are a lot of places in which coming out is still a big deal. I think the idea that that coming out is easier doesn't really matter today is kind of a, a privileged position from like a very, you know, urban wealthy population. An American, yeah. An American, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it, you say that and it, it does remind me that like there is a kind of erasure of any kind of spectrum sexuality in the show. Oh, yeah, yeah. Great. Oh, I feel bad because I like... I literally just listened to uh, yeah. Kate's submission that talks all about bi erasure um, that you guys will get to listen to in a few minutes. So look forward to that. It's great. The conversation around Willow's sexuality is problematic, certainly, from a 2017 perspective. You know, it's just not front of mind because I love the show so much. And I'm not so apt to criticize it. But yeah, that's not great. Although I will say on the topic of bi erasure that... Um, one of the things that changed the way that I think about bisexuality and bi erasure is an interview that I read with Cynthia Nixon, who you guys probably know as the redhead on Sex in the City. I didn't oh. actually watch okay. that show. <laughs> yeah, Miranda. Yep, that's right. Okay, yeah, Miranda from Sex in the City. And so she has, at various points, I believe, been married to men and is now in a committed relationship with a Mm -hmm. woman and identifies as a lesbian. And I think a lot of people who are sensitive about bi erasure and feel like their bi identities aren't respected really don't like that. And so I kind of try to come at it from the perspective of like, well, if we are really letting people choose their own identities, then like, 
that is something that we need to allow, right? Like you can have been in love with a man and in a long committed relationship with a man and then decide to identify as a lesbian, right? Like your identity as a lesbian says something about how you see yourself and what kind of romantic relationships you're open to, you know? Like maybe you are at your core physically attracted to men, but you choose not to be in romantic relationships with them because you don't like the power dynamics and you don't like who you become when you're in a relationship with a man. Like you much prefer to just be in relationships with women and how that makes you feel and how you move around in the world when you're in a relationship with a woman. As someone who is somewhere on the bi spectrum, like that's something that I think about a lot and that I'm really sensitive to. Like, I don't like seeing bi identities being erased. And I think the way that Willow is handled in Buffy is very heavy handed. Yeah. I don't think it's wrong or impossible that someone who's had meaningful relationships with men could choose to identify as a lesbian. You know, because we don't exist in a vacuum, right? We exist in a social context and we've all been socialized in different ways. And like, I interact with women differently than I interact with men a lot. And that includes in romantic relationships. So I feel like people should be able to use whatever labels they want, but I don't think that that is the perspective that Joss was thinking about when he decided to call Willow a lesbian. And I don't think that's where that label comes from, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think he was looking at it in a really like kind of political way of like who has space and where do they have it. And I think that that's kind of where the reaction of maybe the bi community would be on you were with a man and now you're with a woman, but you're a lesbian. It's like, where do we have space? You're a prominent celebrity. Why can't you use that power and influence to shine a spotlight on the fact that we exist? And that we deserve to exist. Yeah. It's complicated. Yeah, that's I so mean, true. What you're saying is true that people should have the right to identify themselves for themselves in any way that they want to. And then, then at the same time, like, there's this political side to it. Unfortunately, like, it, there should not be a political element to it. It should just be whatever people want to be. But there's just not that room in the culture yet it requires people to be activists in a way that you know where you opportunistically jump on an actor or a situation because that's going to advance the agenda that is a good agenda but like you know somebody's personal liberty gets caught up in the middle of that yeah and i and you really do have to interpret what happened with willow in the context of a history of bi erasure So Abigail also asks, how close is Buffy to the American high school experience, demons aside? (laughs) To what extent do you think of Buffy as an American show or character? Right, because Abigail is not um, American. Yeah. And so, like, as an American, I constantly forget that you people exist. I, you know, (laughs) we're the only people and that's how it is. Way to just walk right into stereotypes, Alan. Yeah, man. That's what I'm all about. Yeah, this is a good question. There was a Sadie Hawkins dance at my school. At my school, it was a bag of flour that we had to take care of. And I named my bag of flour Chip. And he had a rattle of chocolate chips in like a little plastic bag taped to a pencil. And then I made him into cookies um, when I was done. <laughs> oh, my God. 
Hell yeah, I did. Ship was delicious. You never had any students just take over for teachers who were mysteriously murdered in the middle yeah. of the school year? That happened. That didn't happen to you? That was totally normal. No, that never happened. Um, yeah. I feel like Buffy is a fairly decent representation of the American high school experience. I mean, I went to kind of a weird nerd academy. So I think a lot of the weird jock power dynamics are more emphasized in Buffy than I actually experienced them. Like in my high school, the cool kids were all in marching band. <laughs> and no, like not even joking. I believe you. It's just And I crazy. was like, not cool because I was not in marching band. That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, like, de- there's definitely, like, all the things about, like, prom and the dances and who's going to ask who and and fighting for, you know, like, homecoming queen. Like, mm-hmm. all of that was um, pretty spot on. And there, I mean, there definitely still were social hierarchies at my school. The emphasis on athletics and reverence for the sports teams, even if it wasn't on, like, the personal individual student level at the like school level where it's like oh shit it's friday we have to you know get out of class early to go to a stupid pep rally in the gym that yeah. like no one actually gives a shit about mm-hmm. yay go us <laughs> i cared because i was in the marching band <laughs> but it was not cool but i was in it <laughs> so like buffy as an american character you do you feel like she's kind of a, a typical American girl in high school experience. I mean, you know, like, aside from the craziness. I mean, I feel like this is a really difficult question for you and me to answer as Americans, right? Both American, yeah. We can't really... um, I feel like that's a good question for you to answer, Abigail. Right. Uh, (laughs) Because, like, I don't... It's hard for me to know what aspects that feel universal to me that are actually very American. Our final question from at Joss Ruckus, um, who is asking about Slayer emotional health and how does it feel to be told that death is your gift? And so I feel like we talked about Buffy's sacrifice and her actual death and sort of the effect that that had on the overall structure of Buffy, but we didn't really talk about how Buffy relates to the idea of death in multiple ways and her role as like a Slayer versus a killer because I feel like that's one of the big themes that the show grapples with over and over again in different ways um, that we kind of didn't really talk about. That whole thing is kind of an element of the superhero aspect of the show, like where in some superhero stories, violence is taken like very seriously, like it's very dark. And then in others, it's very like, isn't this awesome? Like we're beating up all these people, like the bad guys are really getting it in the face and uh, violence is cool. And then you have something like, I don't know, like Watchmen, uh, the comic book by um, Alan Moore, where like violence has a really strong kind of spiritual effect on the people who perpetrate that violence, even if they're doing it for a good reason. It turns them into sadistic people who resort to violence to solve all their problems. And I think that Buffy does a good job of grappling with that and keeping a balance between the reality of what it means 
to use violence to solve problems and the effect that that has on you internally. Like the show is neither too dark nor too light, in my opinion, when it comes to that issue. It's an interesting aspect of Buffy's character, especially if you compare her to Faith in the way that she uses violence and how much she enjoys it. I mean, that's kind of like the point of Faith in a way is to contrast her with Buffy. But what do you think about the health, the emotional health of Buffy in the show? No, I think your response was really interesting. Although I think if you're going to sort of compare the way that Buffy and Faith relate to violence... You should also mention the sort of comparison that the show makes later on with the way that Buffy and Spike relate to violence, Mm because it's doing kind of a similar thing in both ways. With Buffy and Faith, the comparison there, right, is that Faith is so cavalier and careless with her power and isn't concerned with the morality or constraining how she might use her power. And then Buffy has to be the responsible one and actually ask herself, is she doing the right thing? And I think based on Buffy's experience with Faith, she kind of turns off that joyfully violent part of herself Mm -hmm. um, because she becomes afraid of it. And then Spike helps kind of reawaken that in her a little bit in season six when she's getting more in touch with her darker side and confronting the idea that her slayer powers are somewhat demonic in origin. Yeah. And she does that for him in season seven like where he's very restrained and doesn't want to resort to violence because of how it makes him feel, you know, now that he has a soul. And she's like, get it together. I need you to kick ass. Yeah. Figure it out, dude. Like, get over it. Yeah. I mean, I guess if there's any take home from all of this sort of like seesawing back and forth, it's that, you know, this shit is really hard. Like knowing how much violence to use and how to expend your power and when You have to constantly be asking yourself the questions of, am I doing too much? Am I not doing enough? And like, you're probably going to make some miscalculations at some point and be seesawing back and forth over time. Yep. But a lesser show, I don't think would even grapple with that. It would be kind of like Hercules and Xena. Isn't all this violence fun and cool? Which is fine. Like, I think for escapism, you don't have to grapple with it. But the fact that it does makes it a better text. Yeah, I guess we didn't really finish talking about Buffy's character arc where, you know, she starts out being super resistant to her Slayer power and Slayer duties. And then through seasons two and three, really come to embrace it. And then later on, she comes to see it as kind of problematic um, and she's having trouble figuring out the difference between being a slayer and a killer. Mm -hmm. You know, she still feels the pressure of her duty, but she's not really sure of how to enact it appropriately. And then she, you know, she has her sense of duty split between her, her duty to Dawn and her duty to the world. And then coming back and almost being consumed by darkness and feeling like, like the darkness and the violence is all that she has to offer. And then sort of rebounding from that to in season seven, where she's able to embrace some of her darkness without having it consume her fully. Yeah. And it's also like kind of an issue that some people, this is their job and this is the issue that they grapple with. It's not something that either of us have had to deal with. But, you know, if you're a professional soldier or if you're 
a, a police officer. Like this is the line that you have to walk. You know, yeah. you have to use violence in the pursuit of your job and to protect others. But that violence does violence to you, and it's it's a difficult balancing act. And like I said, the show it's not something that the show had to grapple with, and it did. And I think it does a good job with it. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Although I think, I guess we didn't really answer the specific question of how does it feel to be told that death is your gift? I guess the answer is pretty shitty and confusing. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> but so we've been talking for a long time uh, <laughs> and we haven't even talked about some of my favorite episodes of Buffy. So Alan and I are both going to put together our top 10 episode lists and we will have them in the show notes along with all of the top 10 lists that you, our loyal pre-listeners, have submitted. <laughs> um, and if you haven't done that and you're interested, you can email us your top 10 episodes lists and we will add them to our document that is in the show notes, um, at least for a week or two after we first publish it. I would say that for me, every time I watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer, from now on, I'm going to think about you and me and this podcast and us starting this thing together. And like, it's pretty cool that at one point, Buffy the Vampire Slayer was like, kind of a joke to me, like a, a thing that my girlfriend was into that I thought was kind of silly. And then, you know, led me to be in a wedding with my best friend and then into a wonderful community that has changed my life in a lot of ways. And now to kick off a podcast with you where we like explore our friendship and get to share things with other people that we love. Yeah. And, you know, you bring up a really good point because I talked at the beginning of the podcast about how Buffy brought you and me together. But you and I are just two members of a much larger community that is largely built around Buffy and, you know, has expanded to include other stories and narratives that we're interested in exploring together. But that community means so much to me. It's not just about you and me and this podcast. Yeah. We love you guys. Because <laughs> we know you're yeah. listening. <laughs> maybe the only ones listening. Yeah, maybe. Uh. <laughs> it's possible. Don't forget to stay tuned after the music because we will be playing the messages that people have sent in for us talking about why they love Buffy and what Buffy means to them. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. -E and if you didn't already know what that was a reference to, now you do. <laughs> I'm Alan, and you can follow me on Twitter at Chipper Allen. You can follow the show on Twitter at HG Storycast and visit our website at HGStoryCast.com. If you'd like to leave us feedback or give us your top 10 episode list, you can visit HGStoryCast.com slash contact or send an email to contact at HallowedGroundMedia.com. Come join us next month for an episode on Me and You and Everyone We Know, which is my favorite movie of all time. Completely amazing. Unlike any movie I've ever seen, you really just need to watch it. It cannot be described in human <laughs> words. <laughs> the movie was a total surprise to me. I laughed through the whole thing. And yes, there are not human words for it. It's <laughs> I can't stop thinking about the movie like ever since I've seen it. Honest to God, like I probably think about the movie once a day where I'm trying to unpick it. <laughs> I'm not even kidding you. So I'm excited to talk about it. 
because maybe that will stop happening. Yeah. <laughs> because it's crazy. <laughs> so tune in next time. Just get sure. it out of your yeah. brain. Yeah. And I feel like it actually has some similarities to Buffy the Vampire Slayer in the sense that it's like very genre bending and genre blending. It's very story perverse, too. It does things that you should yeah. not do, but it does them so well. It's really charming. Yeah, and it and it kind of ricochets back and forth between like comedy and drama and seriousness mm-hmm. and lightheartedness, and it does all of these things simultaneously in a way that is just like kind of mind boggling. It's good, you guys. Um, so yeah, <laughs> check it out. <laughs> it's worth paying the money to rent the movie for sure. Just saying. Yeah, guys, don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes. That's the best way for us to find new listeners. Uh, I'm Kate, and these are my words. Um, I didn't discover Buffy until it was nearly over and saw an event in real time, which really doesn't fucking matter because this shit's timeless. Well, okay, there's a lot of pop culture references that might confuse people in 3033, but I do think they will look past it to watch for those emotional beats because, hell, this show could transcend species if alien life would drop down and ask for a TV recommendation. Like many of us diehards, I was a weird kid when I was younger. And this show not only had representation of the great and the weird, but of the weird and the seemingly normal. Of course, it did totally erase the concept of bisexuality. And that is one of my biggest qualms with the series. Less because I feel like I need to be represented and more because young me was actually afraid that it meant it wasn't an option. You know, the whole bisexual people are just horny uh, concept was very strong in my community. But um, despite that, I do think that the show does a pretty good job of proving that love is love without a necessary need for qualifying language. Ooh, that was a long preamble to my uncomfortably personal bullshit. Um, I grew up in a house of constant motion. It was often violent, almost always loud, and Buffy gave me a comfy blanket to hide under. Sunnydale was a place to be when it was just all too much, um, when I fell into deep pits for days and the only way I could see forward was to end it all. Watching the Scoobies not only overcome their demons, but subtly and long game storycraft process the traumas that they were facing day to day. Well, it helped me to understand that shit happens and that it's worth working through instead of giving up. And further, coming from a house where there wasn't room for me in the family where, quite reasonably, issues I was facing weren't as significant as those of my brothers. The concept of found family was heartening, and I've certainly found one now. So, no worries about me. Thanks for listening, guys. At Mandy K on Twitter, host of the podcast Pop Culturally Deprived, wrote in to say, I was having a really hard time figuring out how to put into words why Buffy has been so important in my life. What is it about the show that has made it have such staying power, unlike any other show I've watched in my life? Why is this show the one that I can rewatch over and over again and it never gets old? It wasn't until Kai's blog post about Joss and their marriage came out that I was able to articulate it, since I suddenly found myself in a place where I felt like I needed to defend this thing I love. For me, and I emphasize for me, Buffy will always be about representation, about giving me something to look up to about giving me a reason to believe that I can be more than what I feel I am, that my ordinary is extraordinary, if you will. When I discovered Buffy, I was a 15-year-old painfully shy girl. Until that point, my television role models had been DJ Tanner, Kelly Taylor, and Topanga Lawrence. Sure, I wanted to be like them, because I didn't yet know that a girl could be more than someone who was defined by being a good girl and by the men in her life. 
When Buffy started, I found a girl close to my age, she's only a year older than me, who was defined by her strength. She was defined by her independence, and she was unlike anyone I'd ever seen before. Since Buffy started, we've seen a rise in strong, independent female characters on TV. The Hallowell sisters, Veronica Mars, Temperance Brennan, Olivia Pope, Annalise Keating, just to name a few. But for me, Buffy did it first, and she will always have a piece of my heart for that. At JOMO on Twitter, who's the host of the Clockworks and Way Too Seriously podcasts, wrote in to say, When my husband Paul and I met, we were living in dorms at university. One of our very first interactions was when he and another girl were geeking out about Buffy. I scoffed. Buffy? The Vampire Slayer? Really? And he teased me back, telling me I had no sense of irony. A couple of years passed, and in the meantime, one of my classmates, the girl he had been talking to, did a presentation on Buffy in my pop culture class. Suddenly the show seemed much more appealing once I saw that it had depths beyond that of Dawson's Creek and the OC. In the meantime, Paul and I had started dating and gotten engaged. I wasn't living in the dorms, but he still was, as were many of our friends. They had all gotten into Babylon 5 together, and I was left out. Paul suggested that we start watching it together, and after one episode I said, You know what? I'd much rather just watch Buffy. Paul was thrilled and made me watch Welcome to the Hellmouth and The Harvest right away. I was hooked, and I watched all seven seasons within two months. This was 2003, so the finale had aired a few months earlier. It was my first time binging anything. I started again from the beginning and watched them over again. And again. And again. For the next five years or so, there was no time when I wasn't watching Buffy beginning to end. I've watched Once More with Feelings so many times, I could play it in my head when I was bored at work. I joined message boards and found fans online and eventually listened to podcasts about it. I became a bigger fan than Paul. Buffy has gotten me through times of sadness and joy, and season six helped me deal with my past and recognize the years I spent feeling like I wasn't supposed to be where I was. It has brought me closer to my husband and introduced me to countless friends online. It is the show that keeps on giving. I will keep watching it until my kids are old enough to join me, which should only be in a few short years. Hallowed Ground Storycast is a Hallowed Ground media production and is produced under a Creative Commons non-commercial share-alike license. Grrrr. Arg.